Welcome to the Unpolished MBA. I'm your host, Monique Mills. Many times entrepreneurs are called unpolished because they are scrappy and do things in unconventional ways. Well, I like the name Unpolished MBA so much that I even trademarked it. So on this podcast, we commend those with practical experience because they've proven time and time again that one can be successful in business even if they don't have a formal MBA degree. So on each episode, we discuss topics related to business and entrepreneurship. And I've been told that my guests and I provide insights and inspiration to aspiring and current entrepreneurs alike. So this is the place where you can come and hear real life stories that can help you navigate both challenges and opportunities in business. Now let's jump into the next episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Unpolished MBA podcast. I'm your host, Monique Mills. And today I have a special guest, Brian Lee Shields. He is an acquisition entrepreneur and advisor. He has a deep background in advising businesses on growth and combinations, corporate transactions, all types of stuff. Um, I've met him from my acquisitions, you know, that whole world that I'm in right now. And so we're going to talk about some of his background and really, I really want to get on this topic that he's an expert on and that's burnout. So Brian, I want to welcome you to the show. Hello. Hello, Monique. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, thanks for joining me. I'm excited to have this episode because this topic about burnout, which we're going to get to, is not very common, but I have mentioned it to folks. From my own experience, since I work in a startup space, I see it happen so often. And so I want to I want to pick your brain and share with the audience on some signs and things to look for and how to best help themselves when possible. But before we get deep into that, I want to get into a little bit of, of your background because as folks have heard me mention, it's a long list of things that you have actually done. Um, you're a Morehouse guy. That's is that First and foremost, <laughs> that would be first and foremost. Yes. Thank you for recognizing that. <laughs> I'm a Morehouse man. There you uh, go. Just to be clear. <laughs> You're a Morehouse man. And that's a huge, huge honor. Um, do you think that that foundation played a big part in your, in the success you've, you've experienced and why? A- absolutely. Uh, listen, so I would, so I was reflecting this to my wife, whose name is also Monique. Uh, what a coincidence oh oh you know like all all fine women go to spelman and (laughs) all strong women are named monique so (laughs) there you go uh man so i I was having this conversation with her about uh like groups and communities that we do or don't have as experienced executives and i was likening it to hbcus and i before i got into Morehouse and went to Morehouse, I had a perception of HBCUs, particularly because I went to predominantly white high schools and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, you know, like that's the black school. They don't have the resources, not going to be as prestigious, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the Morehouse journey, it was the best decision that candidly God made for me. Like I, I didn't even make that decision. I just got a letter in the mail after I sent in my application that said I had a full scholarship. And like, I was like, well, that's where I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going there. <laughs> and, uh, and, and like, 
it, it created an opportunity for me to know myself, which is the core of what makes anybody successful. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean that both like in my strengths and weaknesses in the context of not being the smart black kid. It's just like, I am the nerd. I am the math guy. I am the business person. I am the social guy, not like the black math guy or the black yeah. social work guy, which is a huge difference. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and then it also gave me a platform to accelerate myself into wall street, which is how I got all this acquisition experience. So I, I got a internship as a sophomore at an investment bank when, you know, like there were 10 other sophomore interns on wall street at the time. So it was like very early in wall street's ability to recruit early. And so, uh, I got to do that. I joined the investment bank full-time. I went to a private equity firm thereafter, and it kind of set me on a track. And, and I will credit Morehouse and the Professional Development and Career Services Center there for being able to do that and putting diverse men in positions like that. So it was up and down the spectrum, just like one of the best decisions and opportunities I had. Yeah, being able to go on Wall Street as a sophomore is huge. Does Morehouse have a co-op program, an internship program where they're partnering with these, with these companies? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this was like a couple of decades ago, Monique. So like we, uh, <laughs> so let's just keep that between us. But, uh, yeah, like, especially at the time we had a lot of, um, we had some alum who were senior at investment banks by then, and they would make the point as pioneers for our school that those banks needed to recruit at Morehouse. And so obviously at that time, more so than now, for obvious reasons, diversity recruiting was a big uh, priority for these banks. So Morehouse being 3000 plus students who are black and men were like, oh, that's a great place. We should just go there and pick off like diverse students. Um, mm -hmm. And so we got, I got lucky because the sophomore recruiting was very, 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 um, very, very nascent and selective. And I got an opportunity to work on Wall Street as a sophomore. And, and I'll be 100% real with you. I came back from that experience like uh, this real life thing is some BS. <laughs> there is nothing waiting for us on the other side of this graduation except hard work. So I'm going to enjoy every single free moment I have now. Oh, and, uh, oh. and, and so like I was out like OWT out. I think the kids now say outside. I was all of that. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm surprised to hear you say that because we were just couple reasons. I, I'm glad you elaborated on Morehouse and the experience it gave you and also the opportunities that are, the, that are there as, as an HBCU and as a college overall, because I do have teenagers and their friends listen to this podcast. So thank you for sharing more about that and, you know, giving them an insight from someone who has done that and became successful. Secondly, um, just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about I guess it depends on what background you come from. Um, because when we co-opted, when we were in college, we were like, oh, wow, I finally have some money. Like, it was a sense of relief. And we're like, okay, I'm ready to get there because then I won't have to worry about money. Like, that was, that was, and we, you know, we went to PWI. So, um, you know, a little different experience. So I I can appreciate what you're saying. I wish that that was, you know, that was my mindset. Maybe I could have enjoyed that time more versus being, you know, concerned and rushed to get out, you know, to make money. 
listen, let me let me just elaborate on that because knowing the context that you have some teenagers, I just want to add this last part too. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so like getting there and having money and financial stability, that's great. Like that's important. That's independence, right? And mm -hmm. that's necessary. I went there and I, and this is important for the burnout conversation too. Uh, you know, like in my 10 week internship, I had like one day off. Like I, I legitimately only had one day off uh, because in investment banking in particular, and a lot of these high performance white collar jobs, you are working like it's not nine to five. You are there to accomplish a task. So like if you think about how NBA or NFL players are always training, always studying the game, that's how it is for elite uh, like white collar careers. You are always on. So I learned how to work hard. Like I slept under my desk, no kidding, for like at least two of those nights. Oh, no. And yeah, and it was like, that is what it was, what it was. So I learned how to work hard. But when I came back to school, uh, I was like, man, paying these bills is going to take some real effort. So <laughs> I have fun. Now, I just want to be clear, though. I graduated magna cum laude. Like I took care of my business oh. because I wanted to get scholarship money and get yeah. like and like. From that scholarship money, I was enabled to like have more fun and take trips and stuff like that. So I funded my lifestyle through my academics. Um, so I took care of my business, but like I had a schedule, like taking all the classes early, be done by one, yeah, get my homework done by like three or four, and then I'm just outside because all of my stuff's done and it paid off, right? Like it yeah. paid off in my grades and it paid off in my my full time job opportunity. So that is the most important part of this is like you're gonna learn how to work hard and like you can come back and have fun, but the end game and the end goal is still the same. Yeah. All right, let's take a moment to thank the biggest sponsor of the Unpolished MBA. That's TPM Focus. TPM Focus is a strategy consulting firm that helps startups and small business owners generate revenue and find their way to profitability when they're launching a new product or in a new market. So reach out to tpmfocus.com. TPM stands for the Profit Matters Focus.com. Uh, and I'm glad that you also pointed out like that type of white collar job, like in finance on Wall Street and all that. That's yeah, the, I've never heard anything less than it being extremely stressful and long hours and things like that. And that type of career or in finance, those careers. Uh, require that of people all right so you decided to escape that though seems like and after eventually. you <laughs> eventually so you went wh where did you go once you graduated from school and you you know went into more of the investment banking side of things then what did you go into and why yeah so uh i went to i worked at an investment bank called Lehman Brothers. If you haven't heard of it, you should look it up. It's very <laughs> notable. Let's say, let's uh, can I we just there say before... infamous. Can we just say infamous? Uh, I don't know. No, because it's like my alma mater, man. I can never call my alma mater infamous. <laughs> Y'all can call it that. It's not what I'm going to call it. But Okay. Uh, I was there like literally right before the crash. Uh, like I, 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 so I did a couple of years there. I left that June. It crashed in September, but by that August, I was at the private equity firm that I was at. And so private equity firm I was at, it's called Welsh Carson Anderson and Stowe. It's a leveraged buyout firm, which means that we would buy companies using some debt and 
put all of our focus and attention on improving the operations of the business so that it becomes more valuable in three to five years. So it's like, how do we grow it faster? How do we operate it more profitably? Do we add on other businesses through acquisitions? Do we launch new business lines, et cetera? And that was super dope because I could see how value was created and like what mattered from a net worth perspective, right? And like, we're all, or at least like, I imagine folks that listen to this pod care about creating wealth. And like, that gave me a seat at the table to see the, like how the people who ultimately have the purse strings and care the most about wealth make decisions. So much so that it inspired me to go work first in our internal operating group, which was like our internal McKinsey. So we would work with the companies on specific projects, hands-on to mm -hmm. fix the sales team, to fix HR work, to fix procurement, stuff like that. And then I went to go to one of the companies to launch one of the divisions in it. So I launched a new product out of one of the companies, like from the ground, like I was in North Carolina doing this hands-on. And that just taught me how to make things happen and how to align those things that are happening with the ultimate things that create value. And that foundation coupled with like my experience buying companies, uh, ultimately put me on a track that would result in me buying my own company, mm -hmm. buying another company and doing a whole bunch of work to improve the value and operations of that company that, um, I had some success with in the last couple of years. Yeah, I want to dig into that because it, the the foundation that you had from uh, college on really prepared you to to become this acquisition entrepreneur on your own. So at what point did you decide that, hey, you know what, I'm going to buy a company and do this on my own? And secondly, was that a self-funded search or was that a traditional search? Yeah, good questions. So... uh because I was at the private equity firm, I knew buying companies was a thing, but then I didn't know that you could buy your own company like off the side of, without a fund until uh, maybe like towards the end of that stint. And I discovered search funds, which is what you're referencing. And, you know, I had a good friend who went to, uh, who went to Stanford business school and he kind of introduced this concept to me and me and one of my buddies who was a peer of mine at another private equity firm, like really dug into it. And we actually tried to buy a couple of businesses while we were still at our private equity firm jobs. So we would be taking meetings in the boardroom of our private equity firm, wow. like not as a private equity firm, but as like Brian <laughs> and, Brian and his friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. So, um, but I, I say that to say like, that was the start, but that was 10 years before I actually did the acquisition and life took me on a journey where I tried some other entrepreneurial things. I ran growth at a few venture capital backed companies trying to get some equity. And, uh, and then I came to a point in my career where I had developed a consistent and demonstrable expertise at growing, uh, businesses and stepping into existing structures and turning them around, repositioning them so that they would be successful. Um, and, but I wasn't getting the credit or the value yeah. that would align with that. Right. I was being kind of, I, I just wasn't being seen in the same value creation that I was making. Right. Mm -hmm. So I had to make the decision of how am I going to get the value I think I'm capable of and deserve and ultimately, I came back to the core of my skill set, which was buying companies. And so I decided to leave my job. And this was like I was 35 at the time mm -hmm. and 37, whatever. I was older. 
had some nest egg and uh, decided, hey, I'm going to go leave. I'm going to take two years and I'm going to go find a business to buy. And so my intention was to self-fund the search and cons do some consulting projects here and there, keep the lights on. And then when I was ready, strike on a business. And it kind of it didn't actually work out that way because both due to providence and the value of my network and the things that I had set up in my career up to that point, I found a business like in the first three months. So uh, of course, uh, here you go. Yeah. And, and like that, that was, that was great. It was the right time, right place. And, you know, a benefit of the network. Um, but I, I was able to close in December of 2019 on a, on an acquisition for Hill and company. And then we bought a second company a year later in 2020. Um, in between, you may remember that COVID happened. Um, so we had a lot on our plate with the two acquisitions, the overall change in the world and the pandemic. And then we had a lot of operational stuff we had to fix in the business in the meantime. Wait a minute. So why would, what was the catalyst that in 2020, you know, the COVID time and all of that, you thought, wow, this is a good time to bolt on to the existing business we have. Was it a deal that you just couldn't pass? What made it critical to do it at that time? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it, so when we bought the first business, uh, we had bought it through an intermediary who had a bunch of relationships of other property management companies, <laughs> one of which the seller of the first company also knew the owner of that other second company. So between that intermediary and the seller of the first company, they were like, you should probably buy this other company. Oh, so we I had. See. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we had a, we had a window of opportunity, right? So we had the opportunity. Um, we had managed our finances in a way where we had capital to do it without having to raise a bunch of extra money. So it was right time, right place. It fit strategically right on top of our business. So we could uh, consolidate offices and, and just like create a bunch of savings. And in that business in particular for property management, density is one of the key drivers of value. So like if you have like a hundred houses you're managing in a city, that's cool. But if you have like 300 in the same city, that's better mm -hmm. than having like 700, but you know, spread across like all like for just to put it into context for like, cause you're in Atlanta, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like for context, it's like having 200 doors in like five points is better than having a thousand doors, but they're spread out like throughout the entire beltway. Yeah. Uh, it, mm -hmm. So so it's just like much more profitable to have them dense like that. So we were able to do that with that second acquisition. So it was great opportunity. Okay. It directly impacted the value of the business and it created a lot more profitability. Okay. So that concentration really makes sense for the industry. So I just want to make it clear to the audience, the industry that Brian bought into, he mentioned a couple of times was property management. So was it of apartment buildings of what was it? What type of properties were you guys managing? Yeah, it was uh, mostly um, HOAs, homeowner associations. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. and, okay. Uh, and we had a little bit of, uh, of like rental properties, but it was mostly HOA. Okay. Okay. So during that time, when I look at your LinkedIn profile, I see, you know, we were talking about you were Morehouse, which was here in Atlanta and then you know, New York City and then North Carolina. And th this whole venture took place in California, correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you in the Bay, because I even heard you mention, you know, your friend at Stanford and that whole concept of basically ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition. 
on having those connections. Now, did moving there help the process go through faster? Was the connections better? You know, does location really matter when you're doing something like that? I think it can in two ways. Uh, Like, pragmatic way number one that it can benefit you is just like volume of opportunity and familiarity mm-hmm. with the type of investment you're doing so like to your point in the bay area so so search funds initially started at stanford university like students from stanford and professors at stanford collaborated put money together started doing search funds same so thing like with the, the startup world like they started everything that's how the whole startup thing worked worked too so shout out exactly to stanford. yeah so, so like they understand those types of risks, like people there generally are like, oh yeah, I've heard of that, right? And so then mm-hmm. it just makes some of the discussions easier on fundraising, et cetera. Additionally, it's a major metro area. So there are just like a lot of businesses to buy, right? It's mm-hmm. not, it's it, like I'm from, well, well, where I was born was Huntsville, Texas. So like there's 40,000 people that live there. It's different than like, the 4 million people that live in the greater Bay Area. So it's like just difference yeah. in terms of volume. So people understand the the business and there are a lot of opportunities. That's like the pragmatic part of it. The social part of it I found was that for me, uh, like moving to the Bay, moving to Oakland, helps, kind of similar to being at Morehouse, it mm-hmm. felt like home. And mm-hmm. so I felt at home in the sense that I was in Oakland and it was like all these people of color and we were like, People are figuring out upwardly mobile things, but we're also trying to be a community and like look out for each other. And so it felt safe and at home in that way, more so than I would say New York, where New York, I, I, I would describe as like, it's just super competitive. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's always like, who's fighting for that spot in front of the subway doors? Like you're always fighting for something. The Bay, it was like more collaborative. Um, and then particularly for entrepreneurs, like to your point about startups, like entrepreneurship, gold rush mentality, like pioneering mentality is part of the DNA of that area mm-hmm. and of California generally. So yeah. that felt like it made it safe socially and psychologically for me to take those risks. And, you know, now that I've done it, I would be comfortable doing it anywhere. But I think that's a really important part of this is like being in a place where you feel safe and supported with the community to do the things that you feel like you're going to go do, right? Like you wouldn't try to be in Hollywood in Iowa, right? Like you'd right. go to LA. <laughs> right. Oh, that's a great point. I, I'm definitely going to make sure we turn that into a clip because there's always these conversations about, hey, you don't have to be in the Bay Area. You don't have to be in Silicon Valley to build a startup. And of course you don't, but there are some advantages to it, some major ones, um, including having that support and ecosystem and the ability to draw upon the knowledge and networks that are already there. And they do this stuff all the time, you know? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. All right. It's good to know that works in ETA as well as in the startup world. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're doing all this stuff. I mean, not at one point have I heard you say, yeah, I took, you know, I took a year off and I decided to backpack around Europe <laughs> after after, you know, so, uh, <laughs> doing investment banking, I just I haven't heard you take a break at all throughout this entire journey. So now I want to I want to kind of move into, OK, you have these companies, you're doing all this stuff. At some point, you're doing too much, like with the pandemic. Acquisitions, you know, trying to transform companies at some point, you're doing too much. 
tell me what happened after you, you bolted on this company and what then happened? Yeah, man. So, um, so just for, to set the stage, we bought the company, the first company, then COVID happened. And then we were like, okay, let's buy the second company. But the combined business still had a lot of internal work to do. And the way I like to make it plain for people, it's like when you buy a house and then you're like, oh man, like I got to remodel the whole house. Mm-hmm. So we basically remodeled and renovated the entire business. Uh, and we brought in new systems. We had new teammates. We had new processes to make sure that the customers were getting what they wanted. And it was all the right stuff to do. We had our customers became way more satisfied with our business than they were initially when we bought them. So it was great. But we had like, you know, the previous owners left us in a hole that we had to dig ourselves out of. And, you know, I said earlier, from my sophomore year, I was like used to working 100-hour work week. So work volume and work intensity isn't new to me. But once we sold the business in 2022, uh, we had put ourselves in a new position where we were like joining a bigger company and because we got acquired. And um, I had a lot happen in my life personally that I'd never experienced before. And it all happened like very, very close together. And it just became too much to bear, right? I had, in 2022, we moved from the Bay to LA, which in and of itself is a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, My wife became pregnant with our second kid and that pregnancy was harder than her first one. So she was like bedridden for a lot of it. And I was supporting Mm -hmm. my daughter who was five at the time and then her and navigating the transition of this business. So I just had like a lot of plate spinning. Uh, My father passed away that April unexpectedly so mm. i had to process and deal with that and i'm an only child so like all of that was for oh me to deal my with. goodness uh, wow and then you know we had some hiccups with the integration and mm-hmm. uh, like you know nothing ever goes perfect with stuff like that so it just became like a lot of stuff that was happening at once mm-hmm. and i realized i was like i would see my performance declining like and which is something i never experienced before so like i wasn't on top of things the way i used to be I was like forgetting commitments I had made, which I never do. <laughs> like, uh, and and just all this, these little things and big things started presenting themselves. Where just taking a weekend or a week off wasn't solving. It wasn't just rest that was the issue. I had a lot of psychological and emotional stuff that had compounded to this point where it was. I, I thought that I had an ulcer for part of that year because my body was having such strong negative reactions to all this mm. stuff that was going on. And at some point I had to make the decision like, am I going to bring my son into the world with me, with this as an issue? And like, is that going to be his introduction to me? Or am I going to take time off to heal? And I, pr- from a practical perspective, I was in a place where I could do that. Um, so I, that's very important because similar to the like, still get your grades point, like, you know, you can't just take time off if you don't have any money. So like, make sure yeah. you're set up. <laughs> but I, I had to take the time off. And I took a an un, an indefinite sabbatical when he was born. Um, it concluded effectively on his first birthday, but it took me a year to feel better and to get right. And it And the way I approached that was like I had a major injury, like I blew out my ACL or my Achilles or something like that. And you know, for those of y'all who aren't familiar with that, it's like, that's a big injury for an athlete. So you have to stop what you're doing. You literally cannot do any sports anymore. And then you have to have the surgery, then give yourself time to heal from that surgery. 
then you have to build up your conditioning back. Then you have to build up your ability to use those body parts in explosive ways again. So it's a very methodical and intentional step function to return to your peak performance with that injury and come back stronger. And that's what I had to do. So like, I literally just did nothing for like three months. I like, I got, I got so antsy because mm. I'm not used to that. Yeah. And, uh, and that was tough. And then I started doing some consulting to try to get my brain back together. And it just kind of built from there into more and more specific projects. And, you know, at, at some point in Q3 of last year, I started to realize like, oh, I'm actually like, I, I got this again. I'm back. <laughs> like I could feel it, but yeah. uh, I was completely detached from processing emotions, from like being able to think clearly and function when I took the sabbatical. And so it was like, proper burnout, which is very different than being stressed. I have some questions on that. First of all, I'd like to say condolences on your loss. And um, I wanted to ask if that was the initial catalyst where you started to say, hey, you know what? Uh, something's not right with me. Or did it, did it occur? Did that grief kind of bring that more to your conscious? Or was it something else? I think that the grief probably brought it more to my consciousness. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I will say, like, I, had a, I have had and had a great team and set of partners when that happened. And so I was, like, handing off stuff so I could focus on arranging services and taking care of affairs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And as I came back from that, like, I took a time off. I took, like, two weeks off. And... Uh, but I just wasn't like on it. Yeah. And, there, and like, I realized that even though I was taking time off, I was still also dealing with like my wife not feeling great and then making mm-hmm. sure my daughter didn't think that her mother was dying and like mm-hmm. yeah, all this stuff. And then we just dealt with her losing her grandfather. So it's like, oh, now she's um, like, death is a concept for her. She understands. And there was just like a lot going on. So I didn't really rest. Mm-hmm. And I started to find that there were things unraveling in what I would like as an example, I'm usually incredibly punctual. Like I was on this zoom call, like on the dot, right? Like I'm like, I'm like very punctual with stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, And I would forget meetings that if I I looked at my calendar and like 15 minutes before the meeting, I was like, oh, I have a meeting with so-and-so in like 15 minutes. And then like 25 minutes later, I'd get a text from somebody like, hey, where are you at? (laughs) Like, I totally forgot. (laughs) Wow. like that was happening. So, um, you know, it was probably like latent and we went through a lot over the previous years with the turnaround and stuff like that, but I was still like on it, man. Like, mm-hmm. um, I felt like in some instances I was thriving in the, that period of high pressure, but a lot of things changed in that 2022 year specifically that felt like I took so many punches to the emotional gut that, um, I, I just like, I had to accept that it was time to sit down in the corner. And, um, I, I, and, and in hindsight, I came to appreciate that I didn't have great hygiene or habits around, uh, releasing or clearing out stress or giving myself momentary rest and respite as I was pursuing a lot of these activities, I was still pursuing my work and the turnaround and stuff like that as if I were 20 something. And, you know, I'm, I'm now 40, but like, you know, I was like late thirties at the time, mm-hmm. like the, the energy level, 
the seniority level being in charge like that, like it just has a different set of demands on you and you have to approach supporting yourself and maintaining your ability to perform differently there when you're in charge of like payroll than you do when you're like an employee. It's just like very different experiences. And so like, I just didn't appreciate or have good habits around that. And, you know, now I've learned them, but uh, that just it built up and, and I had to pay for it. Well, when you talk about different habits, what does that look like, right? So, I, and I'm asking questions as everyone who's listening, who, who has listened to episodes, when I'm asking questions, a lot of times I'm asking for myself or someone that I'm working with. This is very real as what you're describing. But in order to, I guess, try to prevent that, especially for high functioning folks like us, how do we find that momentary rest so that we don't get there? Yeah. Uh, I don't want anybody to get there. So like, I <laughs> just be clear about that. Uh, the, I, I think one of the, one of the biggest takeaways I had, so when I took the sabbatical, I like, I read every single white paper research report on stress management, burnout, psychological trauma, physical recovery, mental recovery, like all this stuff. I'm like a armchair expert at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things I found is the most useful broadly for me is, uh, like more frequent rest. And that doesn't mean just sleep. That specifically means like taking breaks between activity uh, periods and intervals of high intensity. So as an example, I used to have calls back to back for like four or five hours straight. I'm like, go, go, go. Got to like talk to this client, do this investment fundraise, you know, pitch this acquisition. Boom, 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 boom. And a better approach to that would be giving myself like, five to 15 minute breaks between calls, right? And accepting like I need to recover some of that energy or process what I just talked through to be able to go to the next thing, right? Uh, that may mean if I'm going to spend an hour in the morning on a really, really deep work problem, like reading a contract down to the final period or putting together a new presentation and really proofreading everything and making sure the story and narrative flows, I need to give myself like 15 to 30 minutes break to recover. And during that break, it might be like, I don't do anything. It might be that I go for a walk. It might be that I just do a little bit of exercise or like lift weights at the house or whatever. But those are the kinds of things that I've now discovered work for me to maintain the, that high quality of output and decision-making, which as a senior person, as a person in charge of business and in, in charge of employees and their livelihoods, you need to be able to maintain. Uh, but I've also found that a lot of other CEOs and CXOs do that. Like that's how they maintain their ability to make decisions at a high level. They will make sure they're eating right. They will structure their day so that they align the kind of work they're doing with the part of the day where they do that work best. Like I think best in the morning. I do social stuff best in the afternoons. So I take meetings in the afternoons for the most part. Um, I need to work in intervals, like I just said, where I have breaks between calls or between documents so that I can think, process, and clear out my head and, and space. And like that uh, in interval-focused, break-focused mentality allows me to put 100% effort into the things that I'm 
focusing on at that time and then recover so that I can do 100% again on the next thing. But what that also requires, Monique, is an ability to be uh, very, very disciplined at prioritizing what actually matters, right? Because okay. we can't and shouldn't be doing everything. We should be prioritizing like, here are the three things that matter today, this week, this month, this quarter. That's what we're doing, right? And that goes back to understanding the key drivers that create value in your business or workflow or life, right? So it may be that you feel like it's productive to respond to emails all day, but what you really need to be doing is uh, finding one opportunity to present in front of large groups as possible every day, right? That's what creates value for your business, but you're staying busy with something that feels productive. So you have to prioritize what is really uh, meaningful and effective in your business and time. So it sounds like that part and the part you mentioned, you really have to know yourself, right? Um, are you a morning that's person? That's where we started the conversation. Yep. Yep. So here, this one of the funny things is sometimes I'll go on Twitter. I'm a night owl. So, and I know this about myself, but unfortunately the rest of the world works during the day, but I get the most work mm. done at night. So you know, I'll be on Twitter. It might be 3 a.m. I'll be like, who else is up? And other people that are similar to me, like, yep, I'm up, I'm up, you know, and everybody else is cricket. And so I realized, well, you know, I do my best work at this time. But then what ends up happening is I still have to be productive the next day. You know what I mean? And, and fit mm -hmm. into what, how everybody else works. So I still have not figured out how to best balance that. So just being transparent there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I, uh, I, I, how I relate to that and like I've learned from my business partner is how to be unapologetic about your productivity cycle. Mm. And so in one instance, right, like I could see there's pressure because you're, you know, hopefully stepping into being in charge of a business. So you're going to have employees and all these people you kind of have to dictate stuff to. Um, so there's a natural social pressure to feel like I need to be visible, responsive, and around from like nine to five, right? But if you are the most productive 12 to eight or whatever your time frame is, right? Then just communicate that and be clear with people. Like, I will make sure you have X, Y, and Z when you need it, but I'm not going to respond or I may not see this until this time. So unless you absolutely need me and reach me this way, I'm going to do it in this time frame because that's when I do my best work. Yeah. And my business partner was actually really good about that where he would be clear with me on the boundary of, hey, I, like, I, I'm, like I, I wake up and I'm active earlier than he is, but he's up later than me. Mm -hmm. So he would tell me, don't text me or email me or like expect me to respond to stuff before 10 a.m. And then conversely, I'd be like, well, dude, just like, I'm not going to see this email or text or whatever after like seven. Like, I'm just, I'm trying to go to sleep. So like, just yeah. don't expect me to reply. And we'd find, and, and again, that came back to, we would then prioritize what mattered. Hey, I really need you to respond to this. Like house is on fire. I'm calling you at 7.45 AM because we need to be on the same page. Or if he calls me at eight or 9 PM, I know that they're like, I trust him and we've developed enough of a clear relationship where. I know that's really important, so I'll, I'll I'll invest the time. But like, he's not going to just expect me to be responsive to stuff at that time. Yeah. And 
hey, it worked. You know what? We 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 integrated two companies. We grew them. We sold them. Like we we're great friends now. We've been to each other's birthday parties like the last couple of years. Like uh-uh. he's uncle. He's uncle to my kids. Like so, yeah. it works. But I think that when you're in charge, one of the transitions that we have to get comfortable with, especially for us, like people of color who are used to that work twice as hard to get half as much mentality and that like I got to do more than the other person because they're not going to respect me. We have to get used to the fact that what really matters is uh, quality of decision making and responsibility and aligning yourself to be the best in those moments when you need to. Because most of the stuff isn't going to be that urgent, right? Like, you know, somebody's going to ask you, hey, like, where do I send this email to get a response out of this administrative thing? And like, you don't have to respond to that at 8.30 in the morning if you're still waking up. Like, respond to it at noon. Like, it's not a big deal. But if it's like, hey, this client's trying to leave, like, you probably need to know that sooner rather than later. But those are like very, very infrequent things that you you have that level of priority. And you just have to force people to respect and understand that there are boundaries so that you can be the best for you and take care of all the responsibilities that they don't know that actually need to happen for the business. Great points. It sounds like you also have a really good business part. You had a really good business partner. <laughs> How did you find him? <laughs> That's that's yeah. number one. Did you go to college with him or like what? How how'd you find? Because I know so many folks, especially um startup entrepreneurs and stuff like that, always looking for co-founders and partners. You found a good one. Where'd you find them? Yeah, man. I'm not I'm I'm a big not believer, if that's a thing, uh, in like co-founder dating and all that. I think that's uh Yeah. I, that's rough, man. It's kinda like Tinder to a certain extent. And like, you know, there's some <laughs> successful relationships that start off with Tinder, but a lot that don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Yeah, a lot of swiping happens. Yeah, exactly. It's it and it's fundamentally transactional, right? And so, like, I have I have come to appreciate that good partnership over the long term is a long term relationship. And so, like any long term relationship, it takes some time to warm up into. You have to go through your foreman, storeman, norman, performman stages. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, have your first fight and all that. And then make sure you're aligned with values. So with uh, with my business partner, Chris, he and I uh, had known each other through mutual friends for a while. And uh, we actually had been looking at a couple of investment ideas that were similar, but separately. Like I had an idea about this real estate project and then separately he had a similar idea. And then we got connected about that specifically. And we we're like, oh, you're thinking about this too. That's cool. Uh, and we, we had like a lot of debate around it and, you know, that wasn't a project to work together on, but we, I, at least I came away from it thinking like, oh, you know, Chris, like I like him, he's cool. And he thinks in a very complimentary way to me. So like, if I have half the equation, he has the other half of the equation. And so we just kind of rolled with that and we had lunches here and there, just shared ideas. Like, you know, I didn't really have a thing to work on him with. And then eventually we kind of had a similar conclusion where we came to this idea of like, hey, we should buy a company independently at the same time. So then he hit me up and I had this deal in hand and I was like, well, why don't we look at this deal? And uh, and it just kind of went from there. And like all of the projects that I've worked on, business or otherwise, where I've had success and good flow and uh, and longevity have come from some kind of organic pairing like that, where it's not forced. Uh, the quality of my community and network has elevated it and create an opportunity to work with somebody that I kind of like already know. And so like, I would say that that's key, you know, wherever all of y'all go, just remember that these are relationships that if you maintain them could turn into good business partnerships or, 
you know, commercial partnerships or whatever over time, as long as you maintain those relationships, but like, don't expect that you're going to have some idea and then, oh man, I'm just going to hit the, like, you know, swipe left on founder Twitter or founder Tinder, and then find a person who is going to be an exact fit and we're going to get along and be able to weather all the hard times together. Cause like, that's just not how relationships work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like how you said, um, you know, you all, you should make sure you align with values. Um, you know, it's the same thing with dating, <laughs> marriages. You know, I have teenagers. I tell my kids that when you're looking for who you're going to date or when you're in the spouse, looking for a spouse, you want to first start with who aligns with your values. And then in this particular realm with business, it's not just about skills. Like I notice most folks are like, hey, I need a coder and you're a developer. So, you know, this is great. And they try to make it work, even though personality wise is off, value wise is off. It doesn't matter if they have the skill set, but the values on the line is eventually going to fall apart. Um, I want to compliment you, though, on I, I definitely want to compliment you on the, the younger Brian, who had the maturity to see that there was value and 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 complementary um, features between you and your partner, even once you debated on a business or a business idea that you didn't necessarily agree on. That takes a high level of, I would say, EQ and maturity to be like, you know, what we don't we don't agree on this. We, you know, but I like that guy. You know, like. Like that very few people I know can do that. So I definitely got to commend you on having that, especially at such a young age before. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I will say that uh, that was a lesson learned from mistakes. So if anybody listening to this can learn that lesson without having to make mistakes, I would encourage it because <laughs> uh, to the spirit of your point, man, like the best decisions require looking at it through different lenses. And if you're not the type of person that can like hold a hundred different viewpoints in your head at once, which I'm not, you know, you have to have other people who compliment the way you think. And that's just life, man. That's just life, right? Like yeah. you can't do everything on your own. Like most team sports require different skill sets. You know, somebody's got to be the quarterback. Somebody's got to be the running back. Somebody's got to be a def defensive lineman. Like you have to have different roles. Uh, and if you can, have the security and confidence in what you do well enough such that you can respect when somebody who does something different has a different point of view, then you can come find the compromise in the middle that will benefit from both of your perspectives. But if you always have people who just like see the world the same way as you, you're only going to get the same outcome and that's going to be limited. Yeah, that's right. And I think people uh, confuse having aligned values and having the same opinions like that's not the same thing yeah, so yeah I, I will say like as an as an example like there would be several i was actually talking to him about this a couple of weeks ago i was like the, the the thing that would make that makes these kind of partnerships easy in those value alignments is like we would come up to hard decisions and spend like a week disagreeing about how to solve it and eventually we get to like all right what do we think is what do we what do we care about Right. And we would usually articulate it and it usually be something similar. And they'd be like, all right, so if we agree that like that's the right thing to do, how do we do that in this situation? And then it would help us find the right answer. Uh, and so like 
you know, because some people may say like one person might be like, I just care about making the most money. And another person might be like, I care about what's doing right for the business over the long term. Mm -hmm. Those can be conflicting things. Yeah. But we were both like, what's right for the business over the long term? What's right for these people over the long term? What's right for the clients over the long term? Like we would constantly have that alignment. Mm -hmm. And like that's true in like relationships generally, right? Like, I mean, my wife and I fundamentally see the world the same way from our values and how we're building our family. And like, mm -hmm. you know, we fight, but it's not like knockdown drag out. It's just like, I like the way you said that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll say it differently, but you know, I still love you. <laughs> right. So you trust intention. That's an, mm -hmm. you trust the intentions of the other person. I, I think that trust is a big thing, but you, you know, some people may be like, oh, they just want to do it their way because they try to take over and they trying to make, you know, and it's just like, huh? You really have to trust that the intentions of whoever your partners are in business and life and whatever, um, their intentions are good and align with the values like you have to trust folks intentions absolutely huh. absolutely and you know i wish that upon everybody me too me too it makes life easier because you don't always feel like you're looking over your shoulder and someone's out to get you because that's not the case especially the ones you have closest to you you shouldn't feel like that you shouldn't absolutely absolutely um, absolutely you know when you were talking about um all the things in college. So I'm just taking it back to college. It sounds like maybe you, even in college, you were building up to burnout. Like you were building up to all these things and ambitions and stuff you had in life, but you never really, as I mentioned, never really took time off. So when all the things happened within, you know, your family and you said that you took a full year, you know, to get right right what there's some of the what are some of the things that you did to get better mm. ma'am um is it like a therapy lot of... sleeping you know vacation you know what i mean like what does that look like yes <laughs> i mean like i was in the deep hole so i i just said yes to everything anybody suggested to me because first i was like i wasn't I wasn't in touch with what re-energizes me, particularly at that stage of life, right? Like, um, and what I mean by that is, uh, what made like what what rejuvenated me, what made me feel like refreshed when I was in my twenties was different than now. And part of that's physiologically, like I'm just I'm older, my body functions differently, et cetera. Um, and part of it is just stage of life, right? Like. So for example, like I would just spend days now, some like when during that sabbatical, I would just like do whatever I wanted to do in the moment in the morning. Like I, I had I had lost touch with the ability to listen to my own self-direction. And so I'd wake up some mornings and say, like, what do I feel like doing right now? And maybe it was have a cup of coffee. Cool. I'd do that. What do I feel like doing right now? I feel like going to Home Depot. And then I just I didn't have a purpose. I just go to Home Depot. Yeah. Smell the the garden and then come back and then like, all right, what do I feel like doing now? I think I'm going to watch three hours of TV. All right, I'm just going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like an exercise specifically to develop like a reconnection with hearing that, like, what should I do voice? Yeah, um, I definitely slept a lot. Uh, I, I, I found myself taking naps. Uh, I found myself going to matinees and, and, and like within that Monique, I actually found myself having a lot of guilt 
for doing that because yeah. I'd be like at the matinee, you know, it's like six people in the theater and yep. I'm like enjoying this movie. But then I'm like, oh, man, I should be doing something right now. Right. And everybody's you know, at work and here I am at the movies and maybe I should. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like I'm getting away with something. Yeah. Um, but then again, that was that was helpful for me to confront. Uh, like guilt for doing things that actually make me productive. And so like I have less of that now because mm -hmm. I've conditioned myself for that. And that goes back to the point I was making about you and your night hours like. You just shouldn't feel guilty for working in a way that makes you most productive as long as you're being productive and things are moving, right? Like, but we've been conditioned to feel that way. So like all these things felt like me confronting and engaging with activities that I used to think were or feel like were unnecessary for someone who was strong. Oh, when in reality. Uh -oh. Yeah, I'll pause on that. Like that's that's really important. Um, that's a good Wow, that's a very, very good point. Let let me pause right there. There you go. Okay. Let's move forward, Brian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what I found was that um, the, the best, the strongest actually do some of this stuff. Like, I, I, you know, I, I knew this, but it didn't really resonate with me until I was on sabbatical that, you know, like LeBron James, right? He's about to be 40, still a top 10 player in the NBA, takes naps like a lot. And that makes him prepared to perform at his highest levels. And so maybe I don't need to take naps all the time, but what that says to me is that all the rest and recovery work is yeah. actually what helps people be strong and perform at high levels. And so going back to what I said earlier about like C CEOs and CXOs, they've learned that. So they do it, right? They take yoga classes when they need to, or they have meditation time in the middle of the day, or they do walking meetings or whatever to feed the energy reserves that they need to have high output. And that was some, it was a shift I needed to make that I hadn't appreciated because I thought I could still like power through all of it. But you know, when you're day in, day out making decisions that are like, man, could this crash the company? Man, could this make mean that I don't have payroll for people and like they don't have, they can't pay their rents or like, oh, like I have all of my net worth on the line for this thing. And like, I'm making this decision that I don't really have perfect data about. So I'm kind of going on my gut. Like those, those things add up in terms of cumulative stress in your body and you have to find ways to release them and you have to find ways to pour energy back into yourself and rest. So mm. that's priority now. So since, since your burnout, has your definition of success changed and success and achievement has it changed? You know, I think that it has, but like the goalposts haven't necessarily changed, right? Like I have Got it. a net worth number I'm trying to get towards and, you know, a target date for when I'd like to retire and, and stuff like that. I think that the, I, I think what has changed mostly has been having a more nuanced view of how I can go forth to accomplish those things. Mm -hmm. I used to think it would require like a certain amount of like, I got to work this amount of hours and I got to push myself this hard and I got to kill myself and blah, blah, blah or not. And like, then I got to accept that. Like, if I don't do that, then I won't get all these things. But what I've realized is, you know, those are very binary polar opposite perspectives. And then there's a whole world of different variations between it. And so, you know, if, if I thought that there was only a fork in the road, of options I had to get to the destination I was going to, I actually realized there are like a whole bunch of other little like lightly trodden paths in between that if I just like take a minute to be observant, I can see 
see the walkway. So for anyone that's listening right now that feels that they're currently experiencing burnout, what's the first thing you'd advise them to do? I, first, I would tell them to take a day or two off uh, and just like give themselves proper time to detach. And that means take a day off from work. That means turn off your phone and any notifications. That means like destimulate. I'm talking like take a bath in the dark. Man, woman, doesn't matter. Take a bath in the dark to turn off the stimulation and just see how your body feels. That's and great. Then, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then just like, like reconnect with what it feels like to be centered. And then if you go back to work and then you just like get thrown all the way off center again, then there's probably something deeper going on with you. So one of the things um, I've learned is that you now offer a retreat. Can you describe a little bit more about the retreat that you offer to those in a situation? Yeah. So, um, so I, one of the things that's come out of the 50 Lum white papers that I've read and all this burnout recovery work that I've self implemented is I've started to coach people, especially uh, C suite folks, executives, and business owners on how to manage and navigate their burnout so that they can stay productive. And uh, I have a few clients with whom I do that. And it's been great listening to those clients. I've seen a very specific segment of black men in charge who have not developed the habits or the language or the community to reinforce and support like taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. So I created a retreat called halftime. It's in the middle of the year. It's in June. And the, sole focus of that is to take black men who are in charge of departments, companies, organizations out of that context of being in charge and relax. (laughs) Just remember what it feels like to connect with all the parts of yourself that aren't the day-to-day driver, enforcer, leader, right? We water all the parts of the the self that aren't the nine-to-five being in charge version of yourself. And, you know, we did one last year in Palm Springs. We have another one coming up this year. Location TBD. Um, and, you know, we, we do all kinds of stuff, but like none of it's networking. It's just like being present, like enjoying activities, connecting with other people in ways that are more vulnerable and open than you probably typically do. And what we find is that like, you know, all these people who are VP of this, you know, CEO of that, like executive director of this, all they're all kind of dealing with the same things, which is like they haven't prioritized the work that it takes to make them feel whole, centered, and energized, mm-hmm. and their work suffers. And whenever people come to this retreat, they come in low energy, stressed, and then they come out with not only the boost that you typically get from doing something like this, but a better routine going forward of prioritizing those things that help them stay consistently able to perform at a high level. I love that. And I have some folks I'm going to sign up. Um, Mr. Mills will be (laughs) on your list. Absolutely, man. If folks want to check me out, just come to, uh, Mm -hmm. just come to the website, uh, Brian Lee Shields, B-R-I-N-L-E-E Shields.com. And there's plenty of stuff there to click sign up and message me. So I was just going to ask you, Brian, this episode went longer than others and it was intentional because there's so much to learn from you. 
and of your experiences. So I was just going to ask you, all right, Brian, <laughs> how can people find you online? What is the Brian Lee Shields of pretty much everything. Okay. I got the website, Brian Lee Shields. Um, my Instagram is Brian Lee Shields. And that's where I do my podcast, Self Made Dad, the whole other conversation. But you can figure it out from my Instagram. And I'm So you have a podcast? I do have a podcast. It's about okay. fatherhood. Um, the, short an- the short talk about that is um, when my father passed away, I-, I realized I was having a son at the same age that he was when he had me. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'm at the halfway point. <laughs> Uh-huh. And it forced me to reflect on growing up effectively without my dad for most of my life and the concepts of fatherhood and manhood that I self-created and whether or not those were productive and useful, uh, like mental models to maintain going forward. And so I'm like constantly evaluating that through through that podcast. Wow. And what's the name of your podcast again? Self-Made Dad. It's on all the podcast platforms. I will link to that in the show notes as well as to your website. Wow, th- this whole conversation has been absolutely fantastic, Brian. Thanks for sharing so much of yourself and being so transparent with us during this episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, you're, you're doing a great service bringing all these conversations to your listeners. So keep going, going. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished MBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishedmba.com.